Movies that feature dogs have a distinct way of tugging at our heartstrings. Have you seen any of these films? Where the Red Fern Grows, or Marley and Me, or Old Yeller, or, thanks to today's guest, The Art of Racing in the Rain. Originally a best-selling book by Garth Stein with the very same title, the renowned screenwriter Mark Baumbach brings to film the story of a race car driver, his wife and daughter, and his golden retriever that dreams of being reincarnated as a human. Welcome to The Long Leash. I'm James Jacobson. Here at Dog Podcast Network, we have been reaching back into our archives to share with you some episodes that perhaps you haven't heard yet and that we think are really special. Today, we speak with screenwriter Mark Baumbach, who is known for amazing works like The War of the Planet of the Apes and the movie Total Recall. But he gets the opportunity to switch gears to a more touchy-feely kind of film every now and then. A producer had given Mark a call while he was working on an action film called Unstoppable and told him to read the book The Art of Racing in the Rain. The producer friend said not only would it make him want to get a dog, but more importantly, it would really make a special film. Well, Mark did read the book, and as predicted by his friend, he did both. He adopted his yellow lab, Jagger, and he got to work on the screenplay for the art of racing in the rain. Here's Mark Baumbach. You know I'm going to talk about that bottle of alcohol behind you, just because to me that that signifies this is a real writer. Yes, I guess that is true. That is my like end of the day, if I'm in a good mood, pour one out before I go back inside and deal with my four children. <laughs> I love it. How many pages constitute a good day? You know, I try to write it's a little difficult to just uh, describe it to pages. I would say when I'm working on a script, I try to write five to seven pages a day. That's a good day. But some days I'm not really in script writing mode. I'm in note-taking mode and or I'm in sort of a lot of conversations and don't actually sit and do as much writing as I wish I could. But I know what I'm capable of when I'm in the zone. And so I do try to write about five to seven pages a day, knowing that that sums out to, you know, 25 to 30 pages a week, and I can get a script written in about four to five weeks. Okay, so let's go back to Art of Racing in the Rain. It took nine years from the first time someone presented the idea to you for it to get made. Yeah, I think it was about nine. And it's funny because I know I dated Jagger, who is nine years old, so I guess it took about a year or so to, to get Jagger after I first started working on the script. And again, like, it was so different than anything I've written before. Right. And I'd never written anything that made someone cry before. And I remember getting a real charge out of like people telling me the executives I was working with, like, oh, my wife came into the room, or my husband came into the room and saw me crying. And I told them I had just finished the script. And it's nice to, to evoke tears from people. I, most of the stuff I write does not do that. So um, it's been nice. Well, let's talk about that because the first time I saw the film, and I did watch it the other night before this interview, but the first time I watched the film, I was on an airplane and I hear a lot of people watch this film on an airplane. Right? Me too. I, they do. It's weird. So I was on an airplane and I was just so emotional and tears were streaming down. My, I was so into it. And the flight attendant came over to me, looked incredibly concerned. Like I had just lost someone or like, she says, everything okay? And you're very upset. Are you, I mean, this is really, this is really. So, okay. So I kind of know what to expect. So I'm watching it the other night and the same thing 
is happening. It is. It's funny. Like I used to pitch it as like if Terms of Endearment was actually a dog slash sports movie. But I'm that way with Terms of Endearment at the end. Like, I don't know how well you remember that movie, but there was the scene where the boys have to say goodbye to their mom in the hospital. I must have seen that movie five times and I still cry. There are things in Art of Racing the Raid that are emotionally almost impossible to defend against. They're just so primal. Like if you do have a dog, they just rip you apart. And um, I think if you just have loved ones and this notion that everything ultimately is on a journey to say goodbye, that it, it is something that um, is very powerful in that. And, you know, the book itself, I know I didn't cry while reading the book. I remember feeling emotional, but the book is written in a way you know, the voice in the movie is trying to do its best to mimic the sensation of reading the voiceover in the book. But there's something that means almost so poetic in the writing of the book that for me, at least, it, it didn't actually force the tears. There's something about watching these scenes and seeing Denny with Enzo and seeing, you know, I mean, I remember I never had this experience before, but when I wrote the scene when Eve comes home and she gets out of the ambulance and it's the first time uh, that Zoe sees her and she's wearing the hat that Denny gave her. And Zoe runs up and hugs her and says, I missed you. And, and I, I think Eve says, I missed this so much. There's some line there. And I remember when I typed it, getting choked up. And I never had that happen before. I've never had it happen since. But I really felt like super emotional about that moment, probably because I knew what was coming in the story as well. I've had that experience flying on a plane a lot for some reason in that period of time, I was traveling a lot for a TV show I was making and I was going back and forth to LA and I would actually intentionally go to the bathroom and just walk down the road to see who was watching it. And I would think people crying. I don't think it got its fair shake at the box office because I think it was released at a time where we really were already transitioning over into streaming being the preferred way to watch a movie. Like mm-hmm. I knew this was going to be a problem because my own children who loved the book and had been to the set with me and were super excited to see the film. When I said, should we go to the local movie theater and see it? They go, isn't it going to be on streaming one of these days? And they're like, if they're not going, then I know blockbuster numbers at the box office. What does that feel like when you know you have something that is just a smashing artistic piece, but it doesn't do as well at the box office as you were hoping? This might be a surprising answer. It doesn't impact me at all. Is that because you get paid the same either way? Well, no, I guess I would make more money. Put it this way. And the short answer is yes. But the way it would work is that if it made a massive amount of money in the theaters, that would mean that it would probably command, you know, better rates in its afterlife. And then I guess those residuals would trickle to me somehow. But um, there's also just bragging rights in the industry. Like, oh, you were the number one movie for the weekend. But I guess I'm zen enough about it that I know I, everyone forgets that stuff over time. And the only thing that truly matters is what the movie's going to play like 10, 15 years from now. I don't even know how it's going to play 10, 15 years from now. But the only time I feel really upset when a movie's finished is if I say, gee, that could have been better. And I now know what we could have done to make it better and we didn't do it. That, that's the worst feeling. But that's not the case with Art of Racing in the Rain. It's pretty much exactly what it wanted to be. I think the people who... Loved it, really loved it. I think it's going to wind up being on Disney Plus pretty soon. I'm pretty sure. I think that'll find an entirely new audience. It was, again, in a funny place because Fox was the studio that greenlit the movie. By the time the movie was in post and editing, 
Disney had already started making their moves to take over Fox. And by the time the movie was released, it was released as a Disney film, not as a Fox film. But it wasn't a Disney Plus film yet because that platform hadn't existed yet. And the deal they made was actually to give it to HBO first. So it's a, it's in a way like really slick through the cracks on this massive transition we're all going through in our industry from movie theaters being really the purview of films and streaming being the purview of TV to be, I think streaming is now the home to both, you know. I agree. And I'm sure that the exposure that Dog Podcast Network will give this will just totally change it all. We're predicting huge, huge uptick. <laughs> Disney is going to be very excited. I want to go back to the crying thing because you said you've never written intentionally something that makes people cry. Do you think that the emotion comes from the voice you give the dog? I think that does play a role. I think anyone who has a dog, supposing this, but I think it's true at some point, assumes their dog is truly understanding what they're saying to them and and that their dog, there are times where I'll look at my older dog especially, and it may not be verbal communication, but there is deep, deep communication happening between us. And I do think the movie speaks to this fantasy of, wow, what if I could really access every thought my dog has? And then I used to describe the movie a little bit in terms of like, I'm not a particularly religious person, but that it was, it was almost like a guardian angel story or even like your dog loves you more than you love yourself, you know? And I think that's a very powerful emotion for people to reckon with that there's someone out there who loves us so much, even when we're not in our best, they still love us. And I think the voiceover that Kevin Costner lent to it, it has a godlike quality a little bit or a guardian angel-like quality. Yeah, I want to get to Kevin in a minute because I love your thoughts on that. But I think the spiritual component is really very palpable for me. I mean, I think in the first few lines, Enzo, the dog, talks about belief from Mongolian philosophy. You want to elaborate on that? What does he say? It's a Mongolian philosophy that when a dog has lived its lives uh, in a way that it has learned enough about what it means to be human, that they will eventually come back as a human being. Now, you could argue that's a bit human-centric and that Maybe it's a better life to be, to be a dog. I, many times I think that, but at least in the, in the world of the story, that is certain dogs' ultimate aspirations is to really truly understand human behavior to the extent that they've cracked the riddle of what it means to be a human and that in their next life, they will come back as, as a human. Again, there's parts of that that I actually do take issue with, as I just said. Like, I don't think it's necessarily so preferable to be a human other than I guess you live longer. But Enzo sort of, I think what he's really speaking to is this idea that you could exchange emotions and an equal with real parity and not just, I think there's something a little bit bittersweet about the inequality of how much a dog can love a human versus a human can love a dog. And I think there's something about Enzo's fantasy of we will all love each other equally if I could just be one of them. And I think that's why he sometimes fantasizes that. Uh, Zoe will look like him when she's born. There's a lot of sort of projection going on, you know. And do you think that projection is something that dog lovers relate to? I would assume. I know I do. Again, I didn't grow up with dogs. In fact, I was bitten by a German shepherd when I was nine years old and um, had a deep and I think justified fear of certain dogs, you know. And uh, and my parents were, you know, Jews in New York. Who it was like, they just don't get dogs for the most part. And so um, we had a turtle. <laughs> and when I when I dated my wife, we adopted a cat. 
And that was sort of our training wheels on being pet owners. And I used to look at people who would talk about their dogs as if they were their children or as if they were, you know, in some ways intellectually on the same plane as them. Well, they, that's really being a little bit precious about your pet. And now that I have dogs, I, I'm the first to admit I was dead wrong. And they are members of our family. And when I come home from a trip, I'm almost equally excited to see them as I am to see my family members. I mean, they, they are really, they're my loved ones. And I do spend a lot of mental energy thinking about how they're perceiving the world and um, what they need at any given moment and what, and really where the boundaries are, where the sort of obstacles are in terms of communication. Like, what are they trying to tell me at this moment? I mean, just as a good example, it's so much snow outside right now. I'm just too lazy to hike where we hike. It's just, I know I'll fall down the side of the hill. And I feel for them. I come, every time I come in, I, I take them to the backyard. You guys can run around, but I'm not going to you know, go knee deep in snow. And I feel for them. And I'm sure if I didn't have dogs, I would say, what's the matter? They're dogs. They'll be fine. Like, so open the door, let them out, and they'll come back in when they're done. And you realize when you have dogs, it's not that simple. To what extent do you think your empathy with dogs came from working on this project for so long? A ton. I mean, I really do think this project has deeply informed my thoughts about being a dog owner and also about probably animals in general, but certainly dogs like that, that there is something I don't say to my kids who have been spoiled because they've only known growing up with dogs. My oldest was still, you know, 10 years old, nine years old when we got our first dog. So they've all grown up with dogs. And I'll say to them, don't you understand? There is no animal on earth who does this, who will just sit there and stare at your face and wait till you're, you're done talking before, like, there's just no animals that care that much about people. Don't you think there's some kind of deeper spiritual thing going on there? And they'll say, yes, of course. And they, I can't imagine any of them will have dogs in their lives for the rest of their lives. But I do think it really started with this book and this film. Do you think that your children are going to have different views about dogs than you did based on the fact that you guys had a turtle? Yes, I still think of it as a novelty. Like I still get a kick out of walking my dog with the leash or something. And I feel like, oh, I'm that guy walking his dog. Because I never thought that would be me as an adult. Like I have a dog bed in my office here. And um, I love when I've been writing and I look up and I realize my dog has been sleeping next to me for two hours. And I forgot that he was even in the room. And uh, it's another facet of my little nuttiness of my profession where you, you have all these little, uh, you see pictures of writers with their dogs or like it's a great screenwriter, Robert Town. He had this this huge Akita, I think it was. And it, he used to bring this dog to meetings and bring him everywhere. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could bring my dogs to meetings. That would be that would be great. So yeah, I think my children understand dogs a bit through art of racing in the rain as well. Like, especially my two girls of my three girls. Actually, no, my I think my youngest is also became obsessed with it. Really loved that book. And of the films I've made, probably the one they were most excited to see despite their reluctance to go to an actual movie theater to see it they were probably prouder to say my dad is working on that than you know some of the other movies i've worked on that probably got a lot more attention you know by thinking about the world through the eyes of a dog through enzo's eyes how has that impacted your other screenwriting well you know it's interesting there's another series of films i wrote that kind of the apes films right which are obviously very different than this but they do involve non-human protagonists. And I actually think, so I started writing those after I had written Art of Racing in the Rain, but they came out before Art of Racing in the Rain came out. That's how long. 
two Planet of the Apes films came out over the course of development of Art of Racing in the Rain. So I do think I brought some of Art of Racing in the Rain to that in terms of, like, there's no voiceover in those movies. In fact, they speak in sign language. But being able to sort of cross that barrier in my mind to give a, a non-human sort of human sentience in, in their communications, um, Art of Racing in the Rain helped it a lot. And then actually I have a film that's shooting right now in Prague that couldn't be more different than Art of Racing in the Rain. It's a set during the time of the Holocaust. It's a love story between these two teenagers. But it involves voiceover narration. And I, I learned a lot from Art of Racing in the Rain. Two things. One is that narration can be your best friend if you need to sort of, in editing, if you're like, well, we just pulled this part of the scene out. How do we sort of scotch tape these two ideas together? I can add like one extra line of dialogue in the voiceover. That's a great tool. And most movies don't let you do that. And the flip side is, don't let the narration tell the story. The narration should only really serve as counterpoint to what's going on. So those two rules are actually in opposition. I think if you were to watch Art of Racing the Rain with just that thought in your head, you would realize that I cheat a little bit. Every now and then we tell you information instead of showing it to you to get through the story. But for the most part, I try to have the voiceover sort of undermine or have fun with what's going on or just comment on what's going on instead of being like, and then the next day we did this, you know, that's a rule that I tried to apply even more strictly to this film that shooting now in terms of the voiceover and not using it as a crutch too much. And Enzo's a rather smart dog. At least he comes across as a very philosophical animal. Yes, that's a bit of a reach. I think I don't think humans are even that philosophical. So as a philosophical soul, the conceit, of course, is open in that first scene about the Mongolian belief system. What do you think about that? Like you foreshadow basically the end of the film. Yeah, I think it was actually critical. That's something that I borrowed from, from Garth Stein's book that he sort of opens up with that. I think in the first pages, he mentions the documentary. I think it's helpful in a story like this where you know it's going to get upsetting at the end to prime people, even on a subconscious level, that the notion of reincarnation is in the world of the story. Don't be too upset if something happens to someone in the story. We're dealing with a world where goodbye is theoretically temporary, you know. This theme of reincarnation and dogs, this was not the first recent movie to feature that. You know, it's funny, so I confess, and this isn't out of any kind of stubbornness on my part. I've not seen any of the dogs purpose movies. I know when the first one came out, it was before we came out, and we were like, well, that's the last nail in the coffin of getting this movie. And I think where we felt we separated was one, I mean, they're both based on books, but Art of Racing the Rain has a real cult following. And like as Garth Stein will be quick to point out, people will tattoo sayings from the book on their bodies. I mean, there's really hardcore fans. And I think we were like, well, we could separate ourselves simply by the source material. This is an adaptation of a book you love. Again, I haven't seen Dog's Purpose, but as I understand it, there's like a multitude of dogs that keep on coming through this. Yeah, just reincarnation and they come back as different dogs. This is, this is the opposite. This is this one dog story. It just deals with reincarnation. I don't know. In Dog's Purpose, do you hear what the dogs are thinking? You see it through their perspective. You know, I have the intellectual conversation going on in your head that Enzo, through the voice of Kevin Costner, delivers. I mean, again, this is my, I, I totally understand why a studio would be worried about these things being in conflict. What I was saying earlier, it's like 10, 15 years ago, no one's going to remember when Dog's Purpose came out and when Art of Racing the Rain came out. And I'm sure there's room in the universe to have two movies that deal with dogs and reincarnation. 
you can have 10 movies about this and still probably have 10 very different stories. I agree. And I wonder if there's something that is basically like, maybe this is almost a formula, like dog lovers really want to think, believe, do think or believe that their dogs are coming back. Well, you know, again, I've been fortunate in that I haven't had to experience having a dog die on me and then getting another dog and fantasizing whether or not that dog could in some way be spiritually connected. Um, But I can totally understand why people would have that thought. And I mean, truthfully, I think it applies to just the notion of reincarnation itself, certainly in fiction, where there's a lot of stories are are deep down just wish fulfillment, saying to yourself, oh, wouldn't it be great if this was the case? And let me see that thing play out in front of me. And so, you know, people love their dogs and they do have these tragically short lifespans compared to ours, at least. And people will have, you know, 10, 12 dogs in their lives sometimes over the course of their lives. And I mean, I've had people say to me, you'll never have a dog like your first dog. You know, you're never going to love a dog like your first dog. And I'm sure that's, that feeds into this thing as well, that you're like hoping that first dog is somehow threading its way through your subsequent dogs in your life. I can see myself falling prey to that thinking, you know. Let's take a break here and pay some bills. But when we come back, I want to talk about the amazing voice of the dog in the movie, Kevin Costner. We'll be right back with our conversation right after this. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. I love the voice that Kevin Costner gave Enzo in the movie. Was Kevin Costner cast when you wrote the screenplay? He wasn't cast when I wrote the screenplay, but he was the first and pretty much the only person. That's not true. Well, if I'm being honest, he was a little young when I started. And I had said in my head, I wanted to sound like Robert Redd. Um, That was my sort of model. But screenwriters don't get casting choices. Directors are the ones who ultimately make that Call, I had mentioned to Simon Curtis, the director, that, you know, Redford was the voice in my head. And I think he immediately said, what about Kevin Costner? You know, if you listen to their voices, it doesn't even sound that dissimilar. And 
he's like, he sounds so, his voice has gotten so gravelly with age. He just sounds so wise. And they took a run at him and he said, sure, if I can record it where I live. And I'm sure it was one of the easiest jobs he's ever had. I think they did all the recording in his home. And uh, it's just a couple of days of work for him. And he just lays it in. And then when we would tweak things in the editing room, Simon would reach out to him and say, Kevin, we had to change this line to accommodate this moment in the scene. Can you re-record it? And by the magic of audio recording, next thing we knew, we had a new line the next day and we plugged one. Yeah, you said this makes the whole writing and editing process so much easier, right? I'll be honest. It's a double-edged sword because you have a lot of people involved. When you make a movie, right? Like you're starting out, it's the screenwriter. Then it's like the screenwriter and the producers and the studio and everyone will talk. Then the director comes in and truthfully, she or he has to be the person who arbitrates everything because they're going to be quarterbacking through the course of production. Once you go into post and you're done shooting and you're editing, everybody can pitch in. The clock is now stopped running, you know, like, and so when you have something like voiceover, everybody will say, what if he said this? Or what if he said this? I have a good idea. Well, I was just reading the book again last night. You know, it's a great line, this line. We didn't use it. Can we use this line? And it's actually, it's never ending because they know how cheap it is to plug a you know? <laughs> but it's not reshooting. Well, oftentimes when you're working on a film, this frustrating part is just like, oh my God, I wish we shot this one scene. This would have changed. Everything would be easier if we just thought to make this one scene. We can't pay the $2 million or $5 million to get everybody back together and do it. But that's not the case when you have a voiceover. You can say, let's have the person say this, you know? Kevin can go back to his home studio and record a loop and you're done. Luckily, Kevin Costner's not cheap. So like at a <laughs> we probably run out of goodwill from him. And that was probably what saved us from just the learning voiceover. Okay. So had Robert Redford voiced it instead of Kevin Costner, what do you think that would have done? I expect it would have been a similar experience. I think they both are very, very fine actors and have, you know, really evocative voices. And I think... You know, to me, what I was worried about just in my head when I was thinking about it, is it going to be disconcerting to have this older man's voice for the puppy scenes? Is it going to feel like there's a disconnect? But when you, I remember watching the first cut and just having a huge sense of relief because you really are starting out with an older dog and then that wisened voice, it's like it would almost be impossible to do it with a voice that doesn't sound like that. I mean, there are lots of great actors, Morgan Freeman and Tommy Lee Jones and all kinds of actors are very gravelly voice of God voices. That's what we needed. I think there's something about Kevin Costner in particular. There's a slightly um, salt of the earth quality. And I think that, you know, kept it feeling grounded because some of the language that he says does veer towards the philosophical and almost, you know, too poetic at times. And I think Costner is very good at sort of dampening that and not getting too purple on it, you know. I knew he was great. During the production, were you, how involved were you? Um, pretty involved. I mean, there are two kinds of writing experiences you have as a screenwriter. There's one where you're like doing a relay race and you're just handing the baton to the next guy and he ends back to you. And I've worked on movies like that. Usually those are massive movies that just have just a huge amount of work to do. Um, this movie, I was the only screenwriter from start to finish. So, and I had a wonderful relationship with the director. He became a, quite a good friend of mine. And so we would speak all the time. He would send me dailies to look at, and I would call up and say, this looks great. Or um, I noticed where these scenes are maybe not doing exactly what we thought. We should look at rewriting something later on that we're shooting to accommodate that. It was pre-COVID, so I went to set a couple of times. Usually my, my job as a screenwriter, if the script was working, uh, which most of the time, hopefully it is, I'm there for the rehearsal process. Like I'll usually show up about two weeks before we start shooting 
wherever we're shooting. Actors will arrive, we'll have a big table read, and then I'll rehearse the scenes. Usually just myself, the director, and whoever's in the scene, and the script supervisor, and maybe the cinematographer. And we'll just go through the scenes. And then I stay for the first week of shooting to make sure nothing goes off the rails and we suddenly say, oh, we have a problem. And then I go home. And then if I have to visit again, it's because I miss being there and I'll say, oh, it would be fun to be there again one more time. Other movies I've had to be there because we're not done writing the movie and we started shooting, you know, but that's, that's a very different experience from something like this. How many dogs did they end up having? Well, for adult Enzo, there were two, what they call hero dogs or two hero dogs. There's an older dog to play older Enzo. And then there was a gosh, I think a few puppies playing the younger Enzo. There were two dogs, Parker, and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember it. The oldest dog's name was Butler. It was Parker Butler. I'm blanking on the third dog's name. Parker, it's, I think, did the most work. I, I don't want to misspeak and defend one dog. And then Butler was really a champ. He was this older dog. He was just fantastic. And you could tell, you know, it's funny. I was like, you really need an older dog to play the older dog and a, a middle-aged dog to play the, but you really did. They, you could see the difference in the dog. I imagine there was a little Hollywood makeup artistry with the nose because the nose kept changing color a bit as it got older. I don't know how much of it is Hollywood makeup, how much of it is just VFX uh, after the fact. I think we probably ah. treated it a bit. I know that when he was older, I think they did some color work on his hair and um, to sort of gray it up a little bit in spots and just make it look like he had aged a little bit. Um, and yes, I think his nose did weather over time, you know. And there was always a glint in his eye. I don't know if that was done, you know, in post or it was always like you could just see a little sparkle every he shot. Dogs were incredible. Like if they had, I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to give you a glint in their eye. What is that scene where after Eve has died and everybody's left the house to go to the funeral and Enzo sees her hat on the sofa and he has to sort of curl up around it. And like, I'm like, I could give my dog 10,000 treats and spend five years and I could not get him to do that trick on command. I just don't think it would be possible. And I remember watching the dailies and this dog was nailing it like over and over. It's pretty amazing. I know you didn't get too involved in the production, but did they have a lot of succession of trainers for every dog had their own trainer? No, it was one team. It was uh, two women. I'm going to embarrass myself and forget their names again. I'll forgive myself to say this was maybe three years ago we shot it or now. So, but um Two really, really talented women who really work on films primarily and could not have been kinder to their dogs. You know, they had an issue, if I recall, on Dog's Purpose, uh, something with water or something that a dog didn't want to go in the water and they were forcing the dog in the water. And it was a scandal. I want to say that it turned out to be a little bit more of uh, a hubbub than it required. I, I think at the end of the day, the trainer was actually pretty ethical and just maybe just got caught in camera looking worse than it was. But I know that because of that, our trainers were extra sensitive to really making sure the dogs had rest when they needed a rest. And I mean, these dogs were never short for comfort. Every time I was on set, there was like a line of people waiting to play with them. And, you know, they probably just didn't get enough rest over the course of the day. Uh, but they were even great about saying, no, 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 you know, Parker needs time. And they would, and very cushy trailers. They, they lived a great <laughs> Tell me about, describe the dog trailers. I want to hear well, that. Well, I, mean, I, I, I just remember seeing there was this whole section of what they call base camp that was just devoted to the dogs. I think there was a little dog run. And um, I know they had like their own, their own setup. Um, they, they seem to be living very well. Yeah. Got to keep the actors happy. That's great. So obviously dogs are a big part of the film. Another big part of the film is Formula One. And so you weren't much of a dog person going into this. 
How much of a Formula One efficient auto are you? Even less of a car person. But Patrick Dempsey, who is a big car person in, in races professionally, it was the reason that he jumped onto the film very early on is because of this confluence of, of dogs and racing. So he was nice enough to take me down to Daytona and we um, got to sit in the pit and I got to talk to a lot of people and do a lot of research. But, you know, 99% of which doesn't make it into the film, but you just sort of get an understanding of how that world is. And it's it's always interesting whenever I do research, like things that people just assume are boring and take for granted because it's the day-to-day of their job inevitably are the things that I find most interesting. So like there's a little moment in the film where like after a race, um, Enzo is in, it's a new still a puppy. He's in the, um, the paddocks and it's raining and he's in the garage. And I remember seeing some track dog when I was, when I was in Daytona, sort of in the garage, just hanging out. And it's just very evocative to me. And no one was really paying him any mind. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is a really great sort of image of this dog in the world of uh, racing. And it's interesting in that it's also really like the people who love racing really love racing in the way that people love dogs, really love dogs. And there is a nice sort of crossover. And Garth, the author of the book, is very into auto racing. And the character Don Kitch in the film, played by Gary Cole, is based on a real guy named Don Kitch, who I did spend some time with. And I believe it was Don's dog who is on the cover of the book. So... Uh, Totally uninteresting story that is about singing dogs. But that's uh, that's my research story. And then, of course, Ferrari plays kind of a big part in the movie. And then the whole romance of Ferrari in Italy and, and all of that. Did actually Ferrari, what did they think about this whole film? Well, they were very helpful. They sent out a couple of cars. And um, I think it was great for their brand. It's not, you know, it's really tricky with anytime you're using real life stuff in a film or in a TV show. If it's bad for the brand, you know, you're in for a long haul. But this is not that, you know, and, and truthfully, if Ferrari had balked for whatever reason, I'm sure many car companies would happily have lined up to take their spot. But there is something really unique to Ferrari. Certainly, you know, it would be a problem if Ferrari said no, because the dog's name is Enzo. And that, that certainly was really in, intrinsic to the script. But I don't think it was a worry for anyone. Again, it was really sort of a nice way to promote Ferrari. And I really loved, you know, this notion that, that Denny is going to go work for Ferrari it was something in the book that was, I thought, really successfully done that you assume he's just going to be a test driver for Ferrari. And then this extra twist that life can sometimes be crazy and test drivers get promoted and drive F1 and, and it worked out for him, which was a sweet way to understand it. Do you get the sense that this film was calculated by the studios and maybe even by you to be oh, there's this nice crossover between people who love cars and people who love dogs and this is just a natural fit? I know this was a big conversation in the marketing. Was marketing this as a car movie or marketing this as a dog? And I think they tried to split the difference a little bit. It's funny. I think if you were to talk to Patrick Dempsey, certainly while shooting, he was like, this is a car movie with dogs in it because he was so excited to get all these people from his racing world on board. And then I think as the movie sort of headed through editing, and it became apparent, like, it's just, it's a dog movie with cars in it. But I think racing fans did like it. I think there were some, I'm not even sure what they were, but there were some particularities that Patrick and his and his partner brought to the shooting of the races that they felt had a certain amount of verisimilitude that oftentimes isn't the case. It might be because they're maybe less glamorous than usually how auto racing is portrayed. But he had brought in a special second unit crew to shoot the racing and really wanted the racing world to be accurate. I know a lot of the dialogue about racing 
I would sit there with Patrick and he would cross out stuff on my script and make sure that it was accurate to racing. I, like, I, I can literally care less. Whatever you want them to say, as long as it sounds real to me is important. And uh, yeah, so I think it was a temptation for the studio to try to do both things. And I think ultimately it's a dog movie. The central message of the movie is obviously in this title, The Art of Racing in the Rain. What does that mean to you? Well, I think it's a really pretty metaphor what the story is about. And, you know, to me, it's really about life is inherently rain. Life is inherently dangerous and hard to see through and unpredictable. And there is a way to approach it that is only learnable. It's not, it's not inherent to us. It's something that requires repetition and practice. And there is something slightly Buddhist about it, at least the world of the, of the story and our racing the rain. And I think, to me, it also does apply to being in love with your dog, that inevitably you are going to face moments where your dog's health is at risk, and ultimately you're going to say goodbye to your dog. I think the movie in many ways is fundamentally about how do we navigate loss. This is going to be the most pretentious thing I say all day, so hang on. But there's this great John Updike poem called Saying Goodbye to Very Young Children that I used to kind of keep on my desk. And it, the last line of the poem is, I think he's talking to his grandchildren. And he's like, and how this world all full of hellos turns all goodbye, you know? And that to me was a very powerful way of thinking about this story is that it is really about navigating the goodbyes in life, you know? And um, I think what Garth did so successfully in his book, and I think the reason the book was so beloved is that it does leave you with a sense of optimism about loss, which is very hard to pull off, you know, and it doesn't feel insincere. It feels very earned, you know, and I think that's probably independent of how much you love a dog or, you know, non-dog people still love that book. It's a hopeful book about, you know, losing things. Mark Bombeck, screenwriter of Art of Racing in the Rain. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I defy anyone, dog lover or not, to watch The Art of Racing in the Rain and not shed a tear or two or, or maybe have a whole box of tissues ready because I think you might cry a little bit. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I hope you will subscribe to The Long Leash and please tell a friend about our show. We have a whole slate of podcasts available for dog lovers, and you can find out more on our website at dogpodcastnetwork.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite app. And I want to thank you for spending a little time with us today. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Does the act of taking paper to pen and writing help to heal a broken heart after your dog dies? Sheila Cooperman says yes. She joins us on Dog Cancer Answers to tell her true tale about Tucker, her dog who died last year from lymphoma. Sheila shares how writing about him is helping her heal not only from his loss, but from other heartbreaks as well. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and at dogcancer.com slash podcast. <laughs>